I'm honored to be here this morning. Um, one of the greatest privileges for any seminarian of any sort is the opportunity to speak to the professors and peers that you've come to respect so deeply during your years here. And so while I am honored and I think appropriately intimidated, um, I am most of all very, very humbled to be here this morning. Now, I've always been fascinated with Bigfoot. As far back as I can remember, I've been fascinated with Bigfoot. Growing up, one of my favorite movies was Harry and the Hendersons. Have you ever seen it? It's a movie about a family accidentally running over a Bigfoot and then having to take him home to live with them for a few months, or maybe it was weeks. When I was in third grade, I, I did a project on Bigfoot. I had my dad dress up in a Sasquatch costume and run around our backyard while I chased him and my mom filmed the expedition. And he did a really great job staying in character until he slipped into a creek and then said a four-letter word that I'm pretty sure is not a part of the Bigfoot vernacular. A couple of years ago, there was a friend of mine who was in a social deviance class at Baylor right, that examined people with very strange and odd behaviors. And one of the people they examined was a Bigfoot hunter. Right, gets better. It's a Bigfoot hunter who claimed he had the ability to conjure up Bigfoot at any given moment, making him appear out of thin air. Needless to say, when I learned that my friend's professor had persuaded the Bigfoot hunter to come and lecture the social deviance class, I quickly made plans to skip my Greek readings class with Dr. Weaver and informed him that I would be attending an important lecture. Dr. Tucker, you still haven't approved those LLLs, even though you're going a couple weeks before I graduate. Right, so I show up, and sure enough, the Bigfoot hunter's there. And he lectures to us about Bigfoot or Big Feet. I don't know how to word Bigfoot, I guess. And um, he tells us that Oddly enough, he frequently, not kidding, sees them around College Station. No big surprise there. And um, we listen politely, but, but the whole time, we're just waiting for the hammer to drop. Right? When is somebody going to ask him to conjure up Bigfoot for us? So predictably, some, we could use other words, but we'll call him precocious freshman. He raises his hand, and you can just tell by the way he raised his hand and by the look in his eyes what was coming. He says, so uh, if you can, like, conjure up Bigfoot, why don't you just do it right now? And without missing a beat, the Bigfoot hunter responds, you idiot. You have any idea how much trouble I'd get in for conjuring up a Bigfoot in the middle of a college classroom? You must be dumb or something. Can't make that stuff up, man. And as you would expect, sort of muffled laughter broke out in the classrooms. It was painfully clear just how delusional this guy was. But in the midst of the muffled laughter, there was something else. And no, it wasn't Bigfoot. Um, we felt sorry for him. Obviously, we felt sorry for him. But we also felt sorry for ourselves, right? Because even though we knew this guy was delusional, both before and after, more so after, even though we knew this guy was delusional, there was this little bitty part of us I was kind of hoping we would have walked away from that lecture having seen Bigfoot, right? Or at least seen something, and not just having listened to another crazy guy talk. It was that little part of us that longs for a sense of bigness in the midst of our otherwise very small, very little lives. Right? In Matthew 3.13, we're introduced to grown-up Jesus rather tersely. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee. Got to look quicker, you'll miss it. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee. Now Luke informs us that 
Jesus was somewhere around 30 years old when he arrived, which always makes me feel like Jesus has a little bit of explaining to do. I mean, what has he been doing for the last 30 years besides puttering around Galilee, pestering rabbis and making rocking chairs? Right? I mean, how dare he? How dare Jesus wait so long in obscurity, spending the overwhelming majority of his 33 years on boring, trivial, little things? How dare he? I mean, think about how many more people he could have healed. And think about how many more sermons he could have preached. How much longer the Gospels could have been. Scriptures 3 would be like three years long, at least. Maybe more than that. That's why. Right, I mean, as a general rule of thumb, I tend to shy away from criticizing Jesus. I also learned that in Scriptures 3. But, I mean, just hang with me here. Just imagine how much more Jesus could have accomplished. Just imagine how much more Jesus could have accomplished if he just focused more on the big things. It's just such a waste. In Mark 15, 22, we're introduced to crucify Jesus rather tersely. Then they brought him to Golgotha. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, and they crucified him. (laughs) And they crucified him. Now, I I don't like this version of the crucifixion very much. There's no build-up. There's no resounding crescendo. They just bring Jesus out to this hill and just nail him up on a cross. For a supposedly monumental event, epic is probably the last word I'd use to describe it. I mean, how many people do you think were there anyways? How many people do you think were there anyways? I've always imagined a vast sea of thousands of people, right as far as the eye can see, and they're all anxiously pressing in on one another to catch a glimpse and to hear a whisper. But I have a feeling I'm embellishing it. Probably wasn't thousands. Probably wasn't even hundreds. And again, I can't help but feel like Jesus has a little bit of explaining to do. I mean, just think about how massive this thing could have, how big it could have been if Jesus had just had, I don't know, a little bit of a flair for the dramatic. I mean, this is a big money. If he'd just seen Braveheart, that's the way to go. But, I mean, you think, think about it. You could have had the earth. It stops rotating on its axis. This big spotlight shines down from heaven, and all of creation comes to a grinding halt as all of humanity gathers around and hangs on Jesus' every word as he dramatically whispers, it is not done. Finished. Cut scene. Oscar to Jesus. But no, instead, we get this. I doubt anybody even heard Jesus' profound last words as he gurgled them out. Did you hear what he said? No, I think he said, you got to take care of his mom. Are you sure? No, they just, they just watched God die on a cross. And then they went back to eating dinner. Such a waste. In John 20, verse 1, we are kind of introduced who resurrected Jesus, and again, done so rather tersely. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Right Here, here we have the pinnacle of human history, the, the place where the whole story turns, the moment when the ripples of resurrection reverberate through the cosmos and things are forever changed, and the stone was already rolled away The stone was already rolled away? Why do the resurrection so early that only duck hunters and old men would be up to see it? The stone was already rolled away? Why not do the resurrection at high noon? You have a New Year's type of countdown and 
When the clock strikes 12, Jesus comes bursting forth from the tomb and the stone explodes into millions of doves. Is like bronzed up Jesus comes walking out of the tomb holding Satan by the scruff of the neck. Right? That's the way it should have gone. But instead we get this. The most profound moment in, I don't know, existence? And nobody really saw it. Nobody really saw it. It's such a waste. In the preface to the autobiography of legendary Catholic social activist Dorothy Day, famed Harvard professor Robert Coles tells of the time he took his freshman class to go meet Day. And when these students kind of pressed Dorothy Day as to her, her deepest ambitions and goals, what really drove her, this is how Dorothy Day responded. I guess I've spent my life trying to account for injustice and trying to change things just a little. Now, it's tempting to latch on to the phrase accounting for injustice, right? Capital I. Right? I mean, this is a big ambition and goal. This is a massive, sexy ideal. This is the sort of thing we want to do, right? We want to account for injustice. We want to change the world. We want to serve the church. But the problem with such ambitions is that they're so big, we can't really do anything with them except talk about them. The problem with so many of our ambitions is they are so big that we can't do anything with them except talk about them and how great they are. And so while it's tempting to latch onto the phrase accounting for injustice, perhaps the phrase that best explains Dorothy Day's profound life is just a little. Just a little. Now, I I know we want to do big things. Nobody growing up when you're in second grade, little Timmy, what do you want to do? Not much. You know, no. You want to do a lot, but, but perhaps human beings can't do big things. Perhaps all we can do is just a little. And that's why the more I think about it, the more I think big things are a myth. Searching like them is a lot like searching for Bigfoot. I mean, have you ever noticed that big things are harder to find than you think, especially with their being, you know, big and all? In fact, take any supposed big thing and you squint at it long enough, you'll see that it's actually just a compilation of little things. It's a, it's a man in a monkey suit with too much time on his hands and probably too few friends walking around trying to look like a monkey. Right? It's a, it's a big church made up of really little bitty people doing little bitty things. It is the creator of the universe hanging up on a wooden stake at the end of an insignificant and wasteful life. But we don't want to take the time to squint and see that. That itself would be too insignificant. We'd rather keep searching for Bigfoot. And this delusional search actually has a name. Kathleen Norris calls it Akedia. Akedia, it's a Greek word that refers to a sort of spiritual farsightedness in which we become blind to the things right in front of us and enamored with things far away. We become blind with the things right in front of us and enamored with the things far away. Akedia is when you become unhappy with the smallness of your life. Akedia is when you start to turn your nose up at those little bitty tasks like responding to that email, listening to your spouse, loving your church. 
and when you're constantly looking over the shoulder of the person in front of you to make sure there's not someone even more important that you could be talking to. Akedia is when you don't want to tend the garden anymore because you think you should be creating galaxies. Akedia is when you forget that you are a human being and all you can do is just a little. And luckily, there is a remedy for Akedia. And Norris calls it quotidian. Quotidian, a word meaning ordinary or daily. Quotidian is embracing the menial, the mundane, as the place where we actually meet God. The place where redemption actually happens. Quotidian is realizing that, well, you can't account for injustice, capital I. And you can't change the world. And you can't serve the church. You can account for this injustice. And you can change this life, or at least bless it. And you can serve this church. Quotidian is realizing that there is no one more important than the person in front of you. No one more important than the person in front of you. Now one of the, one of the toughest parts of being a pastor of any sort, and I would suspect at any time, is when you have to move on and thus leave other people behind. That and the bad pay and crazy people. Um, a couple of months ago, I had to, to do this, and so I gathered together a group of the college students that I was closest with and explained the situation to them, and you know, we said our goodbyes. You know, good moment, teary eyes. And a few days later, I got a call from another student who hadn't been at the meeting because I, I wasn't that close with him. And he asked me if we could go get lunch. So we did. And while we're there, I'm a bit puzzled the whole time. Because like I said, I just didn't really know him that well. We'd never had any profound conversations or heart-needing experiences. And so I just didn't really understand why he was taking me leaving so hard. I figured it was a great sermon I preached or something. He wanted to tell me about it. You know? and so we meet up for lunch. And at the very end of lunch, he hasn't really said much. He says, hey... Do you remember that time you took me to lunch about a year ago? It's a good pastor, I lied, and I said yes. And he said, well, I know it was a really little thing, so little that you clearly don't remember. I know it was a real little thing, but for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a pastor. The first time in my life, I felt like I had a pastor. That's quotidian. Which brings us back to Bigfoot. You know what's even cooler than Bigfoot existing? A dad in a Sasquatch costume running around the backyard in the Texas summer for his third grade son science project. I, I, know, I know I said big things don't exist, but that was a lie. They do exist. It's just that the big things are the little things. Amen.